Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby and welcome... To Telecast. On this week's show, we have two independent producer distributors who discuss the challenges in the market, how the content industry has shifted in the past few years, and what those changes mean for producers right now. Kate Beale, CEO of UK based Woodcut Media, talks us through the lessons she learned from setting up a distribution business during the pandemic. And Mark Bishop of Canada's Marble Media on the challenges and opportunities in the Canadian TV industry as the new and long overdue online streaming act is set to change the game through the regulation of streaming platforms. It's all coming up on this week's Telecast. My first guest on this week's show is CEO of Canadian producer distributor Marble Media, Mark Bishop. Welcome to the show, Mark. Good morning. Nice to be here. It's lovely to have you on the show. One of our Canadian cousins on the show for the first time in in a little while, which is uh, which is nice to uh, have somebody on from the country. Uh, thanks for coming on Telecast. So, Marble Media, producer, distributor, and production facility owner. For our listeners who may not be overly familiar with the business, can you give us a bit of an overview to Marble Media? Because you work across a lot of genres, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, well, d- delighted to be here and talk about what we do at Marble Media. Uh, we're in our now 21st year of business uh, here in Canada. Uh, Congratulations. Based- Thank you. Yeah, 21 years and uh, still growing and uh, having a lot of fun. We started tw- 21 years ago in my dining room uh, with my my business partner, Matt Hornberg. Luckily, he- we're not in the dining room anymore. Our main studio is in Toronto, uh, Ontario. Uh, and really, you know, from day one, we really built the company as you know, strong roots in Canada uh, with the idea that we can produce great content here in Canada uh, with international partners to either export to the world to co-produce. That was our philosophy 21 years ago. It continues to obviously be our philosophy now. And really, it's about 
creating content with world-class talent, of course, across multiple genres, as you point out. You know, in the early days, you know, a real focus was on kids and family content and continues to be a really important part of our business. Uh, it's an area that we're passionate about, and that's right from preschool content right up to tween and teen content, uh, co-viewing, all of that. But again, if, if we think and start talking about our kids' side, we have a VP of kids uh, who's based in LA. Actually, for us, that's a really important part about, like I said, working with the best talent, often Canadian talent, but also uh, American, international. We're doing a Brazilian co-production right now. We're working with UK talent and something else. So we work with talent from all over the world, but really with kids' content, uh, both scripted uh, and some unscripted content as well. Uh, Our roots came from the kids' unscripted space, actually. We did content from day one of preschool series, This is Daniel Cook and This is Emily Young, right up through reality and competition series like Splat-A-Lot, which really kind of allowed us to, again, create content here uh, with international partners. And Splat-A-Lot's a great example because it, it was done here in Canada, uh, allowed us uh, 12 years ago to purchase a production facility, uh, which we bought a 50-acre ranch just north of Toronto, where we have our back lots, where we use for a number of our shows, the first being Splat-A-Lot was co-produced with the BBC for their CBBC channel, with ABC Australia, with YTV here in Canada, subsequently sold to Nickelodeon uh, and further on Netflix in the US uh, and worldwide. And was a great example of how we can work with a number of different partners and and still create elevated premium content, uh, which in the kids space has been challenging in the past because to get those budgets, uh, you know, it's difficult for one domestic broadcaster to come on board and do. And we really, again, that was, like I said, 12 years ago, we started that model of really working with a number of different broadcast partners, bringing everyone together um, to create something that, you know, really connects and resonates with audiences. Now, since then, we've expanded with the company. 10 years ago, we launched our international sales arm called Distribution 360, uh, helmed by Diane Rankin, who's based in London. Um, And then the rest of our sales team is here in Toronto. Uh, And again, we represent both Marvel content and over half our catalog is third-party content on both the kids and the primetime unscripted space, so the factual reality competition and lifestyle space. Now, I'll say that's an important side of our business as well at Marvel on the production side, and we've really grown in that side on the on the unscripted side of the company. Uh, and so that's really grew out of about six years ago when, when we started developing our own premium unscripted titles, uh, the biggest being Blown Away, which we do with Netflix, um, which now has gone on to do multiple seasons. We did a Christmas special, which is, again, a reality competition series about glass blowing. Uh, and for us, it's a great example of, you know, part of our company's brand value, which is really about uh, showcasing, obviously, great talent, uh, whether it's unscripted or scripted. You know, it's also about blue sky and optimism uh, and being able to kind of peer in, into these other worlds and really kind of celebrate, uh, you know, heroes, celebrating everyday heroes. Uh, you'll see that kind of as a theme throughout a number of our shows. Uh, and if you look at, at Blown Away, it really does that. It really puts a real spotlight on some incredible talent uh, and showing both the their stories and their craft. Uh, And we've got more, which I can talk about today on the unscripted side that we've really grown and and, uh, developed in that side as well. And then finally, we have our our scripted division, which, like I said, is both family uh, and primetime scripted uh, and that we've been been developing uh, that's based here in Toronto uh, and really growing and expanding on that side, both with our own domestic productions, with co-productions and some new stuff that we'll be announcing uh, later this year as well. So give us a, a, an idea of the size of the business then. How many, what's, what's your head count? And, and I'm sure that differs when you're going into production and everything, but give us, a, give us a, an idea of how many people you have over there at Marble Media uh, across those three, you, you mentioned uh, London and, and LA as well. 
Exactly. So we have 35 uh, full-time people uh, across each of those different uh, genres. You know, I think the interesting thing, of course, like any production company, is that we do really scale up uh, when we're in production. Um, right? I think last year we produced seven series. Uh, and so we do also have a sort of a, a production support team that kind of comes in place and, and helps to, um, you know, oversee and drive all of those productions. In addition to the people that work on the, the actual shows, uh, we have a massive post-production uh, division in in-house, which actually services all of our post-production needs, um, you know, for both offline and online editing. So we have all of those facilities in-house. So that's a whole separate uh, team of people who who work on those and, you know, work around the clock. And it's always amazing to me, uh, especially during the pandemic and just how resourceful they've been to still make sure we can deliver incredibly beautiful premium content in a safe way, obviously, as we had to adjust our protocols. But our, our post team have worked incredibly hard, you know, under our head of post to pivot and, and keep all of that going. So again, another area of the company that uh, has really grown over the past few years and really helps to support the other divisions. So you started as a production business in kids. After 10 years, you built your own distribution business. What was the thinking behind that? And was it was that just purely an entrepreneurial opportunity? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think for us, you know, as we looked out of in the world that we're seeing right now, you know, we continue to see and look at other companies and, and you know, because you have to always learn and see what other people have done. And we saw the increased value that companies can have when they own and control their own IP. And for us, you know, we do a little bit of you know, service work or, you know, other people's formats that we bring in and adapt. But for the most part, we were developing our own IP. So as we we looked at that and we said, well, you know, if we're developing and producing our own IP, we're really in the best position to be able to go and exploit that IP because we understand it, we can sell it, we're passionate about it, and we see the long-term value uh, in our content, right? And we could see even back then new platforms emerging and, you know, as each streamer was coming online and, you know, there's just Netflix was sort of a coming on, on board, but they were really, you know, again, about acquisition. And so we saw there was just more, there would be more and more opportunity in the future for platforms looking to acquire content. Uh, and so that was really important to us. And, and to be honest, we started to work with other distributors and, you know, what was frustrating us the most was we were seeing a real lack of transparency, right? You would see, you know, every excuse in the book where you'd get a distribution report, you know, and they would forget to send the check and you'd call about the check. Oh, no, the signing officer's not here today. They can't send you the check. And you're constantly, constantly chasing. And, you know, I remember Matt and I scratching our heads saying there has to be a better way as a as an owner of content to work with a distributor that ultimately they only make money when they sell your content. So, of course, they're motivated. But, you know, there has to be a better way to have transparency. So we said, why don't we set up a distribution shingle that would, you know, again, both service our own content, but work with other other producers and offer to you know, treat other producers the same way that we want to be treated, which is just with honesty and fairness and transparency. You know, we're not about taking on rights that we don't feel we can drive value for. But at the same point, we'll be clear in, in our activities and, you know, aggressive to go out there and sell content to a whole bunch of different places and think differently. And that was really an important part of why we set up distribution 360 was to be able to do that. And I think if you talk to third party producers that work with us, I mean, they're all pleased because, you know, again, you know, we do have fair and honest and timely reporting and we do, you know, share Intel. And like I said, we'll only take on things that we know we can help others build their businesses. I mean, it must be quite an operation just thinking about, you know, the fact that you've got various different departments, as you just mentioned, but also, you know, the post-production, the distribution business, the production facility. 
that's a lot of management involved, you know, as well as distribution and dealing with third parties. I mean, the way that you're set up, the infrastructure needed to manage that efficiently, do you find that you're unique in any way in, in terms of how, you know, how you're talking to other businesses, in terms of how you run your business? Because to me, it sounds like obviously you've got creatives, but you also must have a really effective you know, management system in place to ensure that uh, there's a lot of things that could go wrong if you don't run a business like that well. Absolutely. You know, but I think the thing that we we like to pride ourselves on, and that is that we we do, we have really top talent that work with us. We have people that manage each of those different areas so that as we grow, I mean, we have a lot of scale plans in place. So, you know, as we've hit, you know, the past three years, we've have, have you know, uh, been fortunate to really, have exponential growth each year. And so to do that, we really have to have the right people in place. And there are plans that were, you know, plans in place we announced last year in terms of as we brought on, you know, heads of production for different units that report to an SVP. And all of that was part of the plan, you know, in terms of how we scale and grow the business. Um, And to make sure that to your point, each of those different areas have their own uh, support, you know, have their own uh, management, so that it doesn't take away from another area of the business. I mean, we don't want to detract, you know, as we're, you know, building up post production, I can't detract from production, for example, for us, it's been really important to make sure we have the right people around the table. We've also done work over the years in terms of engaging with consultants, we did a big process uh, review, uh, where we went through and did a full analysis of what our processes were brought an outside firm in look at you know, different software applications that we could bring in to help support communication within the office. Some of that stuff was fast tracked because of COVID and we were all you know, working remotely. But those were all plans that were were well in place. And I think as a company, we're very good about listening to our team uh, and about bringing in other people to help facilitate conversations so that we can make sure we're supporting the growth uh, and supporting what we need to have from a resource perspective so that we can actually achieve those goals. So thinking about those 21 years you've been in business then, how has the Canadian industry changed since you first set up in business? And how have you adapted to those changes? I mean, let's take COVID out of the the equation for yeah. a second, because that's its whole different chapter, right? I, I imagine for a business like yours. But but if you if you just look over the past 21 years of, of the way that the Canadian industry's developed and you've developed within it, how have you adapted to those changes? It's been exciting. It's been a, a bit of a wild ride, uh, I, w- I can say, in Canada. Someday we often talk about it feeling like a bit of a roller coaster where you really have to hold on tight. Looking about the, the reputation that Canada has on the international stage. First of all, again, we've got a great reputation for producing content, you know, from a talent perspective, from a content production and export perspective, you know, as well as I think people know that we are fortunate in Canada that we have multiple layers of government that support our industry from a provincial level, which is like a state level in terms of our local government supporting to our federal government and who support through everything from tax credits to the Canada Media Fund, as well as private funds that are specialized, whether it's the Shaw Rocket Fund for kids content or the Rogers Fund for cable and documentary content, uh, and a number of others. And so we've got a fairly regulated system in Canada, which has allowed for a lot of this investment into the sector. I mean, what's been interesting, and I'll say as well, too, I also sit on the board of our National Producers Association, the CMPA, uh, vice chair of regulatory, um, you know, on our board, and I've sat on the board for the past 12 years, you know, and in a number of different management positions on the board to really look at and, uh, you know, how do we help government? How do we help influence change? How do we help, you know, participate in, in this dialogue? Because the industry obviously changes and evolves. 
I think a big thing for us is really, I'll say as Marble as a company, you know, when we first started out 21 years ago, you know, you could really finance the bulk of the content that you were making, even though you were making it for the international market, you could finance it all in Canada. Our Canadian broadcasters would pay a premium. And there's a whole history of, you know, regulation where they had to pay a certain amount. We had genre protection where certain broadcasters had to buy content from independent producers, you know, within a certain genre and all of those things. So it really, you know, if you look at even the landscape 21 years ago, there were way more production companies right across this country. And there was a lot more commissioning that was happening with the domestic broadcasters. So there was more more money locally and it, it was a very different system, right? And so you could say it was more competitive because, but th- there was a lot more commissioning to go around. And as a company, we would, um, again, sometimes put together deals where we had a couple different Canadian broadcasters, even on board for one show. And it was a different model. Uh, now, of course, there weren't foreign streamers operating here in the country. You didn't have some of those pressures. I mean, Canada's always been in a unique position because we sit just north of the biggest entertainment producer in the world, right? Um, we sit in the same time zone, even as the biggest entertainment broadcasters in the world. Uh, and so Canada's always been in an interesting yet precarious position, right? Where we lose a lot of our talent in Canada going to the US, you know, and we, we're challenged because of the the infiltration of American content. And in many cases, it's not that different from Canadian content, right? And so it's very difficult for us from a cultural identity, which is obviously what born the initial cultural policies and investment act from the Canadian government to really invest in in preserving and protecting our content. It's always been an important uh, business. It's always been a, you know, a a changing business, I would say. Uh, And I think what's really happened in, you know, particularly the past, you know, six to eight years, uh, you know, has really been a real change around from the result of a number of changes to regulatory policy in Canada, you know, a drop in commissioning from the domestic broadcasters, a uh, for those who broadcasters who are still involved and, and, you know, are still commissioning, there's a reduction in the amount that they're paying. So a real reliance on the international marketplace to come on board and a changing, you know, economic model of how we finance our content. And then I'll say, lastly, the biggest change that a lot of places, especially Vancouver and now Toronto as well have seen is a real change in the in the economic model where it is actually more of a service-based business. Vancouver in particular, I believe the stats are something like, you know, we've gone to 90% of all of the production that's happening in Vancouver is all service for American studios and streamers. So, and that's completely flipped because that was never the case. So they've seen exponential growth, which is great for, you know, the unions and the studios and all of the facilities, for example, in Vancouver, but it's a real challenge because it's not supporting Canadian independent producers, Canadian independent creators, and necessarily telling, you know, truly Canadian stories. It's great for the economy. You know, we, we need to make sure that coexists with preserving a healthy ecosystem uh, of actually supporting Canadians. It also explains to me why, you know, you've clearly looking abroad in terms of internationally, in terms of IP development and, and exploitation. Do you think that the Canadian industry is rising to that challenge at the moment, or do you still think you're a little bit behind the ball when it comes to that IP development exploitation globally? You know, I think what we've seen over the past couple of years is, again, you know, and this can be attributed to a number of different reasons, but Canadian content continues to be premium and seen on that world stage. And you know, when I drive down the street today, I could see, you know, Netflix shooting any number of series, the Umbrella Academy, for example, shot just around the corner from my house here in Toronto. Uh, I mean, that's a service project, but it is premium and it is crewed mainly with Canadian talent, right? Uh, and so, 
I guess my point being that it doesn't really matter if it's an American show or a Canadian show. Canadians can make incredibly beautiful premium content that is on par uh, with anyone else. So what that's allowed is really, you know, again, uh, if you think about the parody that, you know, sitting right beside that can be a a Canadian show. So take Schitt's Creek, for example, another great example of a Canadian homegrown show built on the CBC um, that, again, you know, exported around the world and loved by, by millions. And so I think Canadian content that is Canadian content. Yes, Netflix did invest in that series, but that is, you know, Canadian talent of, of, you know, incredible proportions, but that's a Canadian show, right? And there, there are so many examples of that. And so I think, you know, there are many Canadian companies. And I mean, again, Marvel Media is just one example. There's a lot of Canadian companies who are making great world-class content, um, you know, with international broadcasters and streamers every day here that's still owned by Canadians. And we're seizing those opportunities to make that content. So I think a lot of people are rising to the occasion. I think what's been really difficult in Canada over the past few years is there, you know, the industry is here has had to adapt that it's not necessarily just working with the domestic broadcasters. It's actually, you know, how do you attract and work with the streamers and work and think differently? And in some cases, it's this odd hybrid that we've all had to live through because certain funds, for example, even our tax credit system are still require you to have a Canadian domestic broadcaster on board to unlock some of our tax credits. So, you know, that's sort of this odd way of how we've had to look at, you know, engaging with our domestic audience and our domestic market uh, with our domestic broadcasters, as well as attracting international interest, you know, and the international streamers, of course, they all want to come and do business here, because we've got great talent, you know, which is incredible. Uh, You know, we've got resources. uh, And, you know, that also comes in the form of, of money that we have available. And I think it's obvious. I mean, American streamers, American broadcasters, I mean, have a long history of working and wanting to produce content here in Canada, we've got talent, you know, we've got great resources, we've got beautiful land landscapes uh, and great opportunities to, to tell stories as well as a, you know, a favorable dollar uh, for the Americans who want to come and work here uh, and investment at all levels from the, in the form of tax credits. Uh, and so I think that's why we'll continue to see, you know, a lot of strong, uh, you know, opportunities to work differently and think differently, but there has to be a bit of a balancing act for how we attract that investment to come and work domestically, how we preserve enough of our, our ecosystem here in Canada and how Canadian producers can embrace that. And I think many have struggled in terms of really trying to think how do we pivot and create content that works both for the Canadian audience, the Canadian broadcasters, as well as the international audience. We touched on the pandemic, the the P word, a little bit earlier. I guess we can't really go too much further without uh, discussing. We haven't had the benefit of speaking to anybody uh, senior within the Canadian industry for a little while. So I'm assuming it's very much on the back foot now and that hopefully the, you've, you've sort of turned the corner as, as a lot of developed countries have. Talk us through this from a marble media perspective, your experience, because I'm thinking of your different businesses. They were exposed to the the pandemic in different ways, obviously, with the production services side of the business and then then, uh, the actual production side and then obviously distribution side. Did the distribution side of the business keep you afloat during some very difficult times? Yeah, I mean, if we think back, March of 2020 uh, was a, a scary time, I think, for the world, of course, and and for companies, particularly like us, who primarily focus on live action content production. I'll never forget Friday the 13th, March, where I know where we everyone shut down. And of course, I remember going to the grocery store and the shelves were bare and you wondered, okay, is this real? But uh, and hoping it was only going to be, be for a few weeks, but really not knowing. We were fortunate in the way that we had just wrapped earlier that week on the 
month of March, we had wrapped another season of Blown Away, the show that we do for Netflix, as well as the day before we had wrapped uh, another competition series that we do called All Round Champion, which is based on on a a beautiful format that we acquired from NRK that we make here. Uh, We've done multiple seasons, again, which is a kid athlete sports competition series. You know, and particularly, I'll say for the competition reality series, it's very challenging in the way that it, when a production is halted, if it were to be halted, um, you don't have an ending to your show. So it, it was very, it was very concerning as we were approaching and seeing what was happening internationally. We had to get those episodes in the can because you wouldn't have an end to the show if you didn't get to the point of declaring a winner. But anyway, we were very fortunate, and we quickly shift to on the post production side within two days. Fourteen editors working across all of our different shows pivoted to work from home. You know, and we were able to, you know, lose, I think we lost about a day and a half uh, on the post-production side and everybody kept working. And so that was actually incredible to kind of watch that. We had talked before, some editors had asked before if they could work from home and we weren't, anyway, everybody did. It was fine. (laughs) We figured that out and we were able to, to pivot. I think for us, it was very challenging to imagine what the rest of the year was going to look like at that point on the live action side. You know, unlike others, you know, on the animation side who could, that pivot I talked about with post-production of the animation was very similar, but on live action side, we needed to be in spaces and studios and in some cases in outdoor spaces to get back into production on shows that we had green lights for. And that's really, if you look at a company like ours, our primary revenue comes from producing shows and selling shows. So when we can't produce, we can't sell. So, you know, it really can, um, you know, wreak havoc on, you know, your entire business, both for that year and for future years on the sales side. You know, I think where we were fortunate as well is that on our distribution side of the business through D360, and we had been growing our catalog over the past number of years. You know, we did have rights available uh, and we did start right away talking to buyers, both obviously domestically and internationally, to be able to license rights to platforms that were getting concerned right away. Like within a few weeks, we're having a lot more conversations with different platforms around the world who realized they needed more content, right? And that was... You know, in some of our niche areas, like, uh, you know, we have a lot of educational kids content, for example, and, you know, a lot of the broadcasters around the world, especially the public service broadcasters really wanted to see more content on air as kids were going to be home, you know, so there were a bunch of those different areas that we were able to really grow and excel. And for sure, I mean, that, that, you know, continued to give us great opportunities for positive cash flow and, and to keep driving the business forward as we kept looking and see how do we pivot, because we then got into a lot of planning mode. uh, And look, producers are resourceful. We're all about planning and contingency planning and, you know, trying to imagine what do you do if you always have a plan in place if somebody gets sick or you have a plan in place. You don't have a plan in place if the whole world gets sick. Uh, So that's where it became very difficult. And especially trying to work with all the local jurisdictions who were still changing their plans on almost a, you know, a daily or sometimes even hourly basis. With our shows, we produce all, you know, in a lot of different areas in different regions. So at that point, we had a commission from CBC, you know, for a brand new series that we had developed on the east coast of Canada called Race Against the Tide, which is a beautiful sand sculpting competition series that, again, was set to take place on the east coast of Canada on the beaches of New Brunswick, which is actually where I'm from. And it actually on the Bay of Funday has the highest tides in the world. And that for us, this part of the show has this natural ticking clock that you build these beautiful sand sculptures. Uh, and and then, of course, you have to have them judged before the tide comes in and washes them away each night. And so that 
has to be shot at a certain location with a certain tide schedule and, you know, with certain weather conditions and all of those. We have a, a short window, but it was very difficult because we looked and said, okay, it has to be shot in our Canadian summer, which would have been sometime between July and September uh, when it was warm enough to be outside. But then really working and saying, okay, but that's in New Brunswick, which again, is a different, we're in Ontario, a different province. So we had to work with both, you know, municipal, provincial, federal jurisdictions of how do we bring people? We had to bring people from Ontario to go out there, the planning that went in place, the amount of contingency work that had to be done, as well as, again, this was prior to testing being readily available. So working with local health authorities and putting all those plans in place. So that was our first show that we got up the second week of August. And again, it was, uh, that was a real feat. Um, You know, it was the first, uh, you know, unscripted series for CBC to get back into production on, you know, so it was a real uh, first in New Brunswick, it was a real first uh, in, in the pandemic to be back in production. And it it was not for the faint of heart because like I said, there was a lot of planning and strategizing and full credit to our, our team, our production teams that really, you know, found a way to make it happen. We worked with a local company in New Brunswick called Hemmings House, you know, who really helped us navigate those waters. We worked with local, you know, politicians as well, who helped us really understand how to navigate the uh, jurisdiction. And we did it all, you know, in a way that was safe, right? And I'm really proud of how we created a great show that's done really well. You know, we're really proud of it's continuing and uh, we'll be announcing more seasons of that show soon. But ultimately as well, everybody on set was safe, right? And we were able to, you know, achieve a great show in a very challenging environment. And that really, for us, kind of kickstarted us back into production. And then after that, we, we've been in production ever since. And we've had shows that have rolled both field-based shows like Race Against the Tide and studio-based shows. Because with each show, you learn, right? Each show, I mean, it's different municipalities as well and different governments you work with, but you learn, okay, this is how we're going to handle testing. This is how we're going to handle serving coffee on set. And it sounds like a basic thing, but we've all been on production sets. You need to have coffee. Well, it can't be the same way you served it before. So, you know, you're learning and adapting. And I would say as an industry, we all came together, you share war stories and you figure it out. And uh, I think we, we really did. Many businesses like yours, Mark, get to a certain stage of development, get to a certain scale. And then they might look to plot a five-year plan off to sell the business and to, to sell out to many of the big media conglomerates that we see circling. And particularly, you know, uh, as a result of COVID, we've seen lots of M&A activity, you know, speeding up right around the world. Can you see yourself being part of a bigger business one day? Or are you a, a fiercely independent operator? Or is it never say never? Again, a great, a great question for us. I mean, again, I think Matt and I are really enjoying building and growing the business and being able to continue to evolve. It's a different company, you know, than it was 10 years ago, definitely different than it was 21 years ago when we started, you know, and we're having a lot of fun growing and building and working with a lot of interesting, you know, partners and players to help us create this content. So, you know, I think we look at the landscape and for sure, I mean, there's a big spotlight right now we've seen, you know, from the investment community on the Canadian industry just in terms of the growth of the Canadian industry. Uh, as you say, there have been um, acquisitions and you know, we hear rumors of lots of others happening, you know, coming down the line. And so I think it's an, you know, an exciting time to be a Canadian producer and to own your own IP and own your own production company. You know, and I think for us, we never say never because you know, it is about finding those interesting like-minded people. If the right opportunity came along where it truly for us would have to be you know, one plus one equals three, right? There would have to be a real uh, sense of value and enhanced value that partnering and, and being part of a larger group can actually bring to really do something that we can't do on our own. 
because I think, you know, we are fiercely independent. Matt and I are the sole shareholders. We own the company outright. We don't have debt. We've been able to do this ourselves. I think for us, we love that, right? We're proud of that, right? And I mean, I think I wrote an, an editorial in, in one of the industry trades last year talking about that, right? And about the value of celebrating being independent because, you know, we don't have to answer to other shareholders every quarter. I know people that work for public companies and, you know, when that, you know, your end is coming up, you know, you, they often joke, it's like, better not take a vacation in August because we're cutting 20% headcount because it's all you can do, right? When you're a public company, that's what you have to do. If, if you can't deliver on one side, you got to cut on the other side, right? And we we're not in that boat, right? Like we can invest, we invest a lot in development, for example, you know, development's the lost leader, right? You spend all of this money developing ideas that may never come to fruition, but that's what you need to do. You need to make those investments. And if you, you know, were a publicly traded company, they would look at that and say, you know, that's, that's too much risk. Why are you putting that out there? It's like, well, because we believe in it. We believe in the stories we're telling. We believe in our people. We believe in the opportunity and we're willing to make those investments and they've paid off. Right. And so we'll continue to do that. So I think that is difficult to do, you know, if you were, you know, part of a larger organization. So, yes. So I would say the answer is we never say never. But at this point, we're really celebrating and, you know, enjoying being independent. Now, looking to the Canadian content industry again, as you in your role in the CMPA as well, what, what do you see as the biggest single challenge facing the Canadian industry in the next couple of years? I think the biggest challenge that this industry in Canada is going to face is what I was touching on earlier, and that is ensuring that uh, Canadian independent producers and independent content creators are at the heart of the value chain and are holding on and preserving enough of their rights and their value domestically. So that as these international players and domestic players, you know, invest in content, that it's not strictly service. Service is an important pillar, but it's not just service. It's actually ensuring that that there's enough ownership because that's the long-term value, like that's the ability for companies to be able to attract investment and capitalize and grow and ensure we still have an industry here 20 years from now. Because if we are only focused on service work, the challenge we all know, we've seen this in other jurisdictions, if if our dollar goes up, <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden, it's not attractive for the Americans to come here, you know, or, you know, some of the funding subsidies change, and they choose to go to another part of the world, because there are better subsidies, then at the bottom falls out of our industry. And we can't have that. And, you know, that has not happened here, because even as tax credits change and fluctuate, you know, we've had strong companies that have been well positioned, and we need to make sure that that continues to happen. We don't in Canada have a terms of trade, which we did for a number of years. Uh, And our terms of trade in Canada were modeled after uh, what's in the UK, uh, negotiated through PACT in the UK. And we had a lot of conversations with the uh, team there and modeled that through what the CMPA put in place with the Canadian broadcasters to ensure that there were fair value, you know, that Canadian producers could hold on to just like, again, like they have in the UK. Uh, So to make sure that we had those systems in place, we had it for a few years, uh, then our our government uh, changed, changed the legislation and remove that obligation. So, you know, it, ha- it has been the Wild West for producers and been very difficult for a lot of producers to hold on to those rights. And I know we need to go back to that. There's been a lot of discussion uh, with government about putting th- one of those mechanisms, whether it's a code of conduct or code of practice or whatever we call it, uh, but a system in place to ensure that there is a, a mechanism to protect the value of those rights and ensure they sit with Canadians. And now it's time for Story of the Week, the TV industry news item that's caught Mark's eye in the past seven days. What's your Story of the Week, Mark? 
Well, a big exciting thing that's been happening here in Canada uh, that was just announced uh, just a week ago is really about this new bill called Bill C-11. And this is really fundamental and will really change our industry in Canada because it is about bringing the streaming services, both domestic, but as well all the foreign streaming services into our regulatory environment in Canada. And in particular, to really ensure that they are contributing and investing into the system. It's a huge win for Canadian producers, for Canadian content creators, uh, and really will bring in for, you know, the years to come, a huge amount of guaranteed investment into Canadian content. I mean, it's so big in the way that if you think about it in Canada, I mean, we talked earlier about how you know this industry is regulated. But the last time the Broadcasting Act in Canada was updated was in 1991. So if you think about that, I mean, that was back when, you know, we were still renting videos at Blockbuster and we were listening to content on our Walkmans, right? I think I had a Discman back then. And that was a big deal when you could take your CD in the car with you on your Discman. I mean, that's how we were talking about, you know, bringing media with us. It, that was a totally different world. So that's the last time the Broadcasting Act was updated. So a big part of this updating to this bill will be about updating our Broadcasting Act, will be about ensuring that independent producers are at the heart of this, and that this actually funded through ensuring that all all of the streaming platforms, as well as all of the broadcasters, everyone is contributing and investing in content production. So it's a really exciting time for our industry. And there's a real hope and optimism for the future, because we'll have a lot more investment into content. And when does that become enacted then? Or is that currently going through legislation? Or what, what's the current scenario with it? Uh, yeah, so we have a new uh, mandate for our, that our, our government had given in terms of uh, a new government being elected, which is actually the, the old government <laughs> being reelected. They had given a 100-day mandate to actually table the legislation, which they did. So it goes through, like most bills, it goes through multiple readings in the House. It's gone through its second. There's one more reading to go through, uh, and then it will have to be open for debate. And then the plan is at that point, it, it will move towards our regulatory body, which is the CRTC, to really look at how they basically take and, and enact these new mandates, right? And so I think we're still at least a good year away from that. But look, we're already starting to see positive signs. If you look at what's been happening in Canada, and you've seen this announcements about Netflix, now Disney, Amazon, and others, our streaming services and platforms here are opening up hiring local people looking to invest in local content production. So I mean, everyone's aware that this is the new way. And this is how people are going to be operating. And so I think it's happening naturally with the regulation happening at the same time. And it's really uh, exciting to see. And now it's time for Mark's Hero of the Week and Get in the Bin nominations. Mark, let's start with your Hero of the Week. Well, the Hero of the Week for me, uh, again, is, is actually a great Canadian phenomenon that uh, started locally and has gone on to the world stage. And it's called Pink Shirt Day. And I love it. It's from the east coast of Canada, from uh, Nova Scotia. Uh, and it really is about, again, shining a spotlight on bullying and the challenges that kids face uh, in school with with bullying. And it was started by two kids, you know, again, who, who saw one of their fellow ninth graders actually bullied for wearing a pink shirt to school. And so what they did is they went and bought 50 pink shirts and gave them out to all their classmates and showed up the next day all wearing pink shirts to say that that uh, you know bullying is not acceptable uh, and that was back in 2007 and now it is something that uh, on the last uh, Wednesday in February each year you know we do here in, in Canada uh, where we encourage you know, kids everybody uh, you know again our, our government officials we all you know uh, wear a pink shirt to really kind of spark that conversation and talk about it and it's incredible to watch I mean it's, it's expanded all over the world I think it was first to, went to New Zealand then Australia 
adopted by the UN in 2012. And it's really important. I mean, I think it's just, it's so challenging for kids. We know, obviously, you know, again, of, of all the mental health issues coming out of the pandemic, but we know bullying, one in four kids is bullied. And so it's, it's an opportunity to really shine a spotlight and start a really important conversation and put on a pink shirt and talk about it. And I just love the fact that it was started by kids for kids. Yeah, very good. Uh, I haven't actually come across that yet, but we'll put a link in the episode description of the podcast so people can go and check that out. Please do. How about getting in the bin? Who or what are you chucking in the bin, Mark? Given what's been going on in the world, I would be remiss if we didn't throw Putin in the bin. I just think, you know, we talk about bullying and, uh, you know, to talk about what's going on right now. And, you know, I'm optimistic that by the time this uh, podcast is is enjoyed by people around the world, that things will have evolved and changed for the positive. But on the day that we're recording it, I mean, again, there's just terrible stats about what's what's been going on right now in the Ukraine with kids, with adults dying. It's just um, it's awful. And being a bully uh, as Putin is. Is, is just not acceptable and he's got to get in the bin yeah absolutely well i think pretty much everybody that's listening to this would wholeheartedly agree with that i woke up yesterday to him talking about you know making veiled nuclear weapon threats i mean this is like uh, this is like a saddam hussein level of kind of craziness Absolutely. Right. And to have started the story a few weeks ago of I'm just going to go in and protect the Ukraine people. Right. I mean, it's just like he's writing this awful movie that is just like every single trope you would see of, as you say, I mean, harkens back to Saddam Hussein or others of, of just ridiculousness and needs to be stopped. So if we could, if we could all get together and throw him in the bin, the world would be a better place. Let's let's see how things develop. That might end up being the uh, you know the ultimate result, and that would be great. But, uh, <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for joining us from uh, Toronto. Really enjoyed uh, chatting with you, and fascinating to hear about the you know developments and the challenges facing the Canadian industry. And uh, congratulations on your success with Marvel Media. And uh, will we see you in Canada in a few weeks' time? I'm hopeful, but yes, we're we're still waiting. Uh, we, today, we just lifted a bunch of travel restrictions here in Canada, so some of our team will be there. Definitely, Diane Rankin f- uh, from Distribution Three Hundred and Sixty, who's based in London, will be there because it's much easier to get from London to <laughs> to Can. But if not at MIP TV at MIPCOM for sure, and look forward to connecting with people there because we miss getting together and uh, having drinks with all of our friends around the world. Absolutely, Mark. All the best. Thank you again, and we'll see you very soon. Thanks so much. Take care. My next guest on this week's show is CEO of UK factual production business, Woodcut. Welcome to Telecast, Kate Beale. How are you doing, Kate? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Justin? I'm all right, but I'm a bit fed up of war and various goings-on in Ukraine, which seem to be developing every minute. Let's put that aside for now. That's not what we're going to be talking about. What we are going to be talking about is Woodcut. We've met various events around the the world in various places sounds very sounds very glamorous but various different tv events in the years when there were international tv events but for those who aren't aware of woodcut can you give us a bit of a background and tell us about the business because there are different arms to the business aren't there there are so woodcut is um seven and a half years old and actually we met just before i launched woodcut in real screen in dc i remember it I remember it well. But we are seven and a half years old. We're based in the UK. And we have three arms to the company. So there's Woodcut Media, which is the original company. And we are a factual television production company um, you know, and indie. We make you know, content for the UK and international broadcasters. We also, um, during the pandemic, launched two other businesses. One um, is Woodcut International, which is our 
distribution company. So we distribute our own content and third party content. And that has been an enormous learning curve for me over the past um, 18 months. It's very different world running distribution company. And that is um, led by Kula Anastasi. And then also we launched Woodcut West, which is our Bristol-based specialist factual company led by Paul Wooding. So Woodcut as a group has has three arms and we're a, a close team of program makers and distributors who are punching above our weight. Well, congratulations on launching those new businesses. I mean, was, was that always the plan then? Or was that just opportunistic? From the very beginning of Woodcut, we've worked very closely with distributors and I have an enormous respect for how they operate and also the value of working closely with distributors as a producer. I think it's really important to get talking to them at a very early stage of development because they have a different perspective on your content and also, crucially, they can bring financing to the table. So as a producer, I've always had an ongoing relationships with different distribution partners. However, in 2019, so before the pandemic, we noticed a trend of content funding becoming a little bit more difficult. And there was quite a lot of disruption in the distribution industry. So people remember when uh, Q Media, the Canadian company, um, went down. And we were actually quite a big client of Q's at the time and lost money over it and lost control of our content temporarily, which wasn't a nice place to be. So actually, towards the end of 2019, we started this business plan, which was Woodcut International. And it was sort of a an idea at the time of, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we tried to do this? Because we have good international contacts and we, we have a good reputation on the on the global stage. However, the pandemic uh, you know, hit. And obviously, at that point, like everyone else, we focused on core business. We had to really focus on what was important to us as a company, which was delivering programs to the broadcasters who we were contracted to and that's all we did was you know sit there and 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 make sure that we could do that however sort of probably may june 2020 our chairwoman who is who's one of our key investors again spoke to us and said let's look at this proposition again because there may be an opportunity and and uh, another one of our shareholders said to me businesses are built in times like this so the fact that we were delivering to broadcasters, we were surviving, we were still in business, which we were grateful for every day that we were all still in business and that everyone in the company was still healthy. We thought, okay, well, let's take a chance on it. And we were very fortunate to work with one of our investors to launch a distribution fund. And then Woodcut International launched around that distribution fund. So we could co-finance content ourselves. Um, we could go into broadcasters and say, absolutely, instead of having to go to X, Y, or Z distribution company, we could co-finance it and distribute ourselves. And it gave us a real advantage. And, and launched, we launched it in um, 2020, September 2020. Um, and we are about 18 months old. And so far, so good. But the learning curve is huge. That must be an incredible experience to launch that sort of business at that sort of time and but you know i can i can certainly understand that phrase that you use which is you know businesses are are built in times like this what do you think then is your key learning then in those 18 months having you know set up and decided this is the right way to go what's been your key learning do you think one your biggest takeaway so far because it's still a nascent business right it's still 18 months it's it's not not great uh, deal of time to be in business we are still small you know, we've only got sort of just over 150 hours but by the end of uh, end of may this year we'll have invested um, about a million pounds into content 
which has been incredible. And I think the key learning for me is the absolute importance of having people around you who can sell um, and also having great content. And they are really, really obvious learnings. But every week when Kula and I are catching up and Kula is working with her team, the need, the market is hungry for great content. The opportunities are there to sell to them. You just need to have that product to deliver. It's a really difficult question in some ways because the key learning for me has been everything. I've learned how to do distribution. I think I knew you know, a little bit of it, but a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. So I've been obviously saying to people, okay, I don't know what I'm doing here. How do I do this? How do we do this? And, and taking advice from people. And people have been very, very kind um, in giving to us um, their, their knowledge and expertise. But I think the key learning is you just need to keep selling. Being able to sell is paramount. Yeah, it's a very obvious learning, but it's it's the one that's making our business work. So you're working across acquisitions as well, the acquisitions on the uh, on the distribution side, as well as working on the production side for Woodcut. So, well, Kula runs Woodcut International. So I have a, a strange position that I sit across Woodcut Media West and International. So I am both the customer and the distributor. So I'm the client and the distributor. So sometimes there are a few awkward conversations between Kula and myself when I'm saying, but you really need to distribute this. And she'll say, no, it doesn't go in the catalogue. Sorry, try elsewhere. But so there is that slight um, (laughs) uh, amusing conversations we have on a Monday afternoon. But uh, in terms of acquisitions and what we're looking at, we aren't positioning ourselves as a you know as a a acquisition hungry distributor that's not what we are however we are working with some third-party producers in very specific way we do have third-party content on the books but they the reason they come to us is because we offer it's not the finance thing that we're offering it's the production expertise so often the third-party content that we are distributing we have exec produced or it's you know for example it's a history piece. They would like the history expertise of Woodcut or it's a crime piece and they would like the crime profile of Woodcut to be attached to their documentary. It's using our, our whole skill set rather than being able to say, here, have the, have the deficit financing. It's not about that. There are brilliant distributors around and they've got far more money than we have. You know, I would advise, you know, actively advise other producers to go to them and you know, come to us only if you need our skills, I suppose. Um, and we do still work with other distributors. It's not that we just only work with Woodcut International. In the last few months, we've signed deals with Abacus, with Rainmaker, with Cachette. Um, there's plenty of work to go around. Wow, that's uh, that's really interesting. And actually, speaking to Mark earlier on in the show, that he's you know it sounds like his is fairly similar business in in many ways, uh, although working in different genres. Tell me about Woodcut West then. So so that business is based in Bristol. Is that natural history? Is that assumption that it's nat- it's a natural history business? Is that right? It's based in the post-production house Films at 59, which is one of the big natural history houses of Bristol. So it's where a lot of the Attenborough gets made. And you walk around the building and there are amazing photos on the wall of natural history programmes they've done. So yes, you know, worldwide, we know that Bristol is the watering hole for natural history. Um, it's run by a chap called Paul Wooding, who is who's been around quite a long time. I don't think he'll mind me saying that he's a veteran of the TV industry. Um, and the great thing about Paul is he is brilliant in natural history, but he's also brilliant at specialist factual. But he also you know, ran the holiday program at the BBC. You know, he's got actually quite a varied and strong skill set. So he is a good 
well-seasoned exec who's been around all of the, you know, the top indies and and a long time at the BBC. But the focus going forward for Paul are those specialist factual big ideas. And that, that does lean into natural history too. And he is the guy who, you know, he produced uh, T-Rex autopsy a couple of years ago for Nat Geo. So he built a T-Rex and then cut it open. It's those kind of big, bold, crazy ideas that we are hoping to come out of, of Woodcut West. So Woodcut, the the original business, if you like, and content. Now, you, you touched on true crime, and I know that's uh, an area that you've been leaning into recently. But tell us about what else you're producing. What are the projects you've got on the go right now that you can talk about? And maybe g- genres that you specialise in, and maybe maybe new genres that you might look to to move into in the coming years? So we've always talked about four pillars of Woodcut. And this is the thing that's emerged from the beginning of Woodcut is is naturally we have four particular areas that we've worked in. And so the first pillar of Woodcut is um, true crime. And this is probably the most prolific area that we work in. And we have done for quite a long time. And actually, we were probably one of the first true crime specialists in the UK in the, in the fact that back in 2009, 2010, we were producing the first ever commissions for Crime Investigation Network, which was you know, sort of very much market leaders at the time. So those shows, we will do 10-part series, 20-part series, but equally we'll do a three-part deep dive special. So you know, the one that we're most famous for, when a taxi driver picks me up and says, oh, you work in TV, what TV show do you make? The one I will always say to a taxi driver in the UK is Britain's Most Evil Killers. And invariably, he say, oh, my wife loves that program. And um, being incredibly sexist and very stereotypical, but that is what happens. Britain's Most Evil Killers is on Sky, and you'll see it literally wallpapers the um, EPG at times, which is wonderful. But we also make for other broadcasts as well. Obviously, we had uh, Surviving the Serial Killer on Channel 4 last year. Um, particularly one that I'm fond of at the moment is a series that starts this week on Sky Crime called Murdered at First Sight, which is a series about people who are murdered by somebody who they never met before, um, stranger murder, which is actually quite an unusual phenomenon in the UK and the US. For us at Woodcut, true crime is very much a staple and it's something that we are continually trying to evolve, And whether that's a different point of view, whether that's a different way of storytelling, yeah, something like Killer and the Family for We Make for Discovery is a, is a different type of way of telling the, the crime. And it's simply the, the different lens is the voice that's telling that story. So it's the brother, the sister, the niece, the, the, the uncle of the killer, the father of the killer. Or something like Surviving a Serial Killer, which we did for Channel 4 and is, is also going out internationally, you know, is very stylistic. There's no voiceover. It's incredibly stylized in the editing style. So we're trying to always push the boundaries in that genre. We know how to do the compliance. We know how to approach the victims. We can, we're brilliant at getting access. So it, it's a really great place to start from and then creatively push as far as we can. So that's pillar one. Pillar two is specialist factual. We do an enormous amount of specialist factual and high profile specialist factual. And I don't think we perhaps shout about it enough. So, you know, an ongoing series that we have for the Smithsonian Channel in the States is Combat Ships, which I absolutely adore. And that's a, a brilliant series that we can tell fascinating, interesting and diverse stories in. And um, we've just producing, just announced, so I am allowed to talk about it, Hitler, A Life in Pictures, which is a co-production between Channel 4 and Rainmaker. And that is telling the story of 
you know, the world's most photographed man in the first half of the 20th century. It's, it's an extraordinary sort of piece. Look, it's a very obvious idea. But interestingly, during lockdown, a lot of people digitized more of the unseen and rare photos of Hitler who were able to bring those to the screen especially making it and producing it now is quite a strange feeling because of what's going on um, in the world. And other specialist factual titles over the past couple of years, like the day Minute by Minute or Britain's Forgotten Wars for Tony Robinson or Secret History of World War II for Channel 5. So we're, we're very well established in the specialist factual f- space. And as a female exec producer in the specialist factual world, I always find it quite interesting. It has traditionally been a, a world of older white middle-class men who have been the exec producers of these shows so actually I feel that Woodcut brings a a slight freshness and perhaps at times revisionist or feminist take um, on some of these subjects because it's me who's making them Um, and and that's been really enjoyable personally for me in the last few years and then the third pillar is what we would call our premium factual and these have traditionally been sort of one-off docs of people or places that are hard to get. So we made a series with Nat Geo with Sir Ranulph Fiennes and Joseph Fiennes going through Egypt called Fiennes Return to the Nile. Um, we've done a couple of documentaries as co-productions with Idris Elba and his production company Green Door. We have a couple of things that are in production at the moment I'm not allowed to talk about with A-list Hollywood talent, which we are incredibly excited about. So those are fewer in hours. So whereas something like Britain's Most Evil Killers will be 20 episodes, this will be one. And it's it's not as, as prolific, but they are incredibly exciting to work on and high profile. And then the fourth area of Woodcut, which is the continually growing area we are working on and we're working to make ourselves stronger is the factual entertainment. And so at the moment, that's things like A Royal Guide 2 for Channel 4, which is our, our sort of light, lovely, warm bath of a show, which is, tells you a royal guide to holidays and royal guide to weddings. And um, if you need to have a uh, you know, a moment of cosy, ref- you know, lovely TV that doesn't make you think too much. I think a royal guide is where it's at. But also, we've been doing some great paranormal shows. Paranormal captured um, just went out earlier this year, and that is a different type and perhaps more internationally facing um, type of factual entertainment. But this is the area that we are looking to grow that kind of popular factual factual entertainment. Well, just coming back to true crime for a second, then. We've seen the explosion of fast channels over the, the, the past year in particular. And you're creating a lot of volume uh, because true crime is, you know, by its nature, as you said, many of the commissions are quite high volume. Is that something that you might you know, think about in the future, creating your own true crime fast channel? Is that something that could be on the cards? We did go quite far down the line before COVID of looking at launching a, a, a true crime AVOD, actually. Um, we were speaking to different platforms and working out because we do have a lot of content. You, know, we're, um, you know, At the moment, for World's Most Evil Killers alone, we have 120 hours. And then there are other franchises, How I Caught the Killer, Killing My Family. You know, we've, we've got a lot of true crime you know, stories that we can tell. However, at the same time, I did the Woodcut International Business Plan and I had these two projects at the end of 2019. I didn't think I could cope with launching more than two really big businesses during the pandemic. So at the moment, there are no plans because we're focused on making international media and West work. However, this time next year, you know, we'll see what happens. We are talking about busyness in in production. It seems to me that 
the factual space is really busy at the moment and you know perhaps playing catch up for the months that, that there was nothing happening but also obviously we know due to the changes in the content landscape that you know there are more buyers now and there's more channels who are looking for content do you get the sense that there's something of a a boom in the factual area right now there is a boom in the factual area however i'm not convinced it's going to last too long so i think we all need to definitely make hay while the sun is shining i'm not convinced also there's as much money i think there are certain channels or streamers who are paying well but also some of the linear channels and particularly their budgets are going down we're in a sort of rock and a hard place situation that there are there is a boom and that is a good thing however not everyone can pay for everything they want And sometimes they have lemonade money for champagne taste. So you need to make that work. Forget COVID costs now. What we're actually looking at is budgets are going up because the cost of living is going up. So everything costs that little bit extra now. And specifically in the last couple of weeks, I've been talking to other indie bosses and we're all sitting there looking at our budgets thinking, okay, this isn't going to stretch quite as far as it did a few weeks ago even. Petrol, food, accommodation, all the things that you need to pay for for filming is going up. So Although it is great and there are more customers, not all of those customers are paying brilliant prices and also the budgets are having to go further. So it's a sort of curate's egg. It's good in parts, I would suggest. The traditional linear network is no longer the be-all and end-all when it comes to maybe a customer for, for a uh, producer such as yourself. As the digital world builds and budgets come down when it comes to linear channels perhaps not having as many viewers as they used to do you think the balance of power is starting to shift a little bit more towards the producer as the ip owner and them having more and more options in order to to create their content and places to take that content rather than waiting for the say so of one commissioner who may be having a bad day and may decide that, you know, your project isn't what they really want. Do you get the sense that the balance of power is shifting slightly more towards the producer? I think owning IP is essential in today's market, unless you are going to a streamer or a US network who will pay for the privilege of buying out that IP. For the sort of the traditional British-style factual, we need that IP to make it work. And I do think the balance of power has shifted slightly, but only to those producers who are good with finding financing. I think there's a that you know, those of us who have been nimble on our feet over the last few years, already working with distributors over the last few years, exploring investment financing rather than just distribution and exploring other ways of creating that sort of the, the funding pot are in a good position. Uh, there are other producers around who haven't quite caught up with that expectation. So there is a shift of power. If you're a producer walking in a room saying, I've got funding attached, or I work with this distributor and they're really keen on this idea, that makes the conversation far easier. On the reverse of that, there are other producers walking into that room who don't have the funding attached, you know, who are being given offers of 60 or 70% of the budget and they don't really know where else to look for the rest of that money. And, and and so I think the expectation from broadcasters is that all producers are going to be able to bring financing. And I don't think that's necessarily fair on all producers, because ultimately, the first thing a producer should do is make a brilliant programme. 
and make brilliant content. So this is why I think actually I would thoroughly recommend Indies work with distributors because they really can help with that financing because it is difficult. You you get a commission, you get a green light, and then they say, yeah, we're going to commission you, we're going to green light you, but we're only going to give you 60% of the budget. So you have that wonderful moment of euphoria and then you sit there with your head in your hands thinking, okay, where am I getting the rest of the money from? And it is a difficult moment of that win is slightly taken away from you because then you think, okay, I now need to do the rest of the work to get to this full budget. You've got to be an entrepreneur now to be a producer. You've got to have, rather than just making the show, you've actually got to have those relationships and build those relationships around the world and and do the hard yards to actually help co-finance a show. That's definitely something that's changed, hasn't it, over the last five years or so irrespective of COVID. That's definitely something that I've seen come into the industry much more strongly probably in the last five, six years. A hundred percent. And actually, I I think Woodcut, I don't like to blow our own trumpet because I'm very British about these things. But I think we were quite pioneering six, seven years ago, the way we launched the company. Um, I was very fortunate because the company I was with before Talent Television, they did kids TV, entertainment and films. So I often watched how kids TV productions were packaged together or film financing was packaged together. And they'd often have third party investors, they'd have a distributor, they'd have three different channels on board. And and it would be a package of um, finances who would make up this, this whole. And Factual wasn't like that. And I remember going to my first MIP and I was blown away by the amount of Um, content and channels and people out there I didn't realize the world of TV was so enormous and that really did transform the way I thought being a talent was I was like well can I apply the the principles of film financing and kids financing to factual if they can do a kit of parts of financing why can't we do it and there were certain big co-productions that were happening like that the, the sort of more natural history huge budgets that were already financed that way but not that much was seven years ago and and there has been a change and I you know, I think we at Woodcut you know I've spent a lot of my time as you know because you've seen me in those bars and you've seen me in those com- at those conferences getting to know the international broadcasters so if I do only have 80% of the budget I can go to France or Germany or Scandinavia and see if they'll come in for the, the, the other 20 or getting to know the distributors to see if they'll help me have those conversations and that has very much changed enormously it's become the norm when it really wasn't about five six years ago talking about heading over to the u.s and business trips to pitch content and to hopefully make some sales with international networks how's that been for you since you built your own distribution business but also have been dying to get out there and pitching to to u.s buyers Clearly, it's all been Zoom, and everybody's got to, got by by Zoom. I mean, is has that impacted you? And and are you planning some trips out there to the US anytime soon? So interestingly, we think we have benefited from the Zoom world. Yeah, there is no doubt that it's easier to get a meeting with a commissioner via Zoom. What we're not benefiting from is the social aspect of it, and. We are very, very lucky that I, myself and the team, so Cooler and other and other members of the team have spent our time networking furiously leading up to the pandemic. We didn't know it was coming, but we have a very good network. And it has been that network that has sustained us during this time. And I don't think we would have had such success during the COVID years that we've had 
if we hadn't have done that groundwork beforehand. So I do think having in-person meetings at markets and conferences is absolutely essential because it definitely benefited us during the time when we couldn't see people because they knew who we were. They'd had lunch with us. They'd had dinner with us. We perhaps had conversations in an easier way with them because they knew us sort of socially. And and when I mean socially, I mean sort of at a market. So we are really, really, really keen to come back. I am going to MIP TV. Kula did go to MIPCOM. um, And we're both and and our our head of development, Joe and Yuri, will be going to Real Screen West. We're all going in June. In terms of going to the States, we did actually have a States visit planned for around this time. But it seems that they're slightly behind in COVID than where we are. The feeling is, is that people aren't really taking meetings in their offices. So I would rather continue via Zoom and then make a big splash at real screen, which I do find a very valuable conference to attend. No, well, if there's any uh, bean counters there in a, in a network or a larger business listening to this, then there you go. That That's the value of getting out there and networking when you get all those bar bills that are coming in at from two in the morning at, at whatever bar you in whatever country around the world, there is a value to it. The sooner we can get back to that, the better. I think I may be one of the only producers, and this was at Edinburgh, actually. I won't name the channel or the idea, but I did pitch in Edinburgh um, an idea at three in the morning on a nightclub dance floor, and it was commissioned two months later. That does exist. That does happen. It is worth doing those things. Though you heard it here first. Well, talking about events, we've got London screenings happening in the UK right now with uh, lots of different distribution businesses screening their latest catalogs to buyers from all around the world. Or I'm, I'm assuming it's mainly European buyers that are traveling to this. But are you involved in this in any way, Kate? Are you, uh, are you going out and about in London this week? I think I'm a hanger on. So we're not having a Woodcut International party as such because it's not appropriate for a distribution company our size to do to hold a big event in something like this however we are going to a couple of parties and having lunch and and it's nice to see especially the europeans flying in and we can catch up with our friends and that's always a good thing and now it's time for story of the week the tv industry news story that's caught kate's eye in the past seven days what's your story of the week kate Well, I think like most people, um, all of the Russia and Ukraine stories really are catching my eye. But the one in particular for me is the fact that Ofcom um, have launched 15 investigations after 644 complaints against Russia Today, RT. And I think for me, as a factual program maker, impartiality is paramount. It is the most important thing to give a fair and balanced view of any story, actually, whether that be a news story or whether that be a documentary story. And it's worth noting the reason it's so important to me is that television has a level of trust higher than any other form of media. People genuinely believe what they see on television and they believe that the the scripts that we write, the facts we put in the script, the opinions that we give are the truth. So I think in the UK, um, we have a proud programme-making tradition and Ofcom, who are our regulator, help us uphold that tradition. So I am very pleased to see that these complaints have been lodged and that the review is being undertaken as a matter of urgency. Actually, not too long ago that I think CGTN from China was also subject to various uh, Ofcom investigations. But obviously, in the wake of, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we're, we're seeing 
lots of sanctions and lots of action happening when it comes to cracking down on on Russian businesses. And we've also just seen, and probably by the time that this show goes out on Thursday, we'll probably have seen some more. But just today, on the day that we're recording on Tuesday, we've seen that the UK trade body pact has called on members to suspend cooperation and trade with Russia. And we've also seen that MIPTV is now uh, no longer accepting uh, any Russian attendees for the event. And that's also in the wake of Series Mania doing a similar thing and barring uh, Ross Kino from attending. So there seems to be a real momentum going right across the industry now, not only the TV industry, right across uh, commerce, that all seems to be uh, banding together to implement some really tough sanctions. So hopefully that will do something and, and make Mr. Putin think again. Hopefully. I hate to think where we'll be on Thursday when this actually goes out, though. And now it's time for Kate's Hero of the Week and Get in the Bin nominations. Kate, who's your Hero of the Week? So my Hero of the Week are war reporters, war correspondents, because they do such an incredibly brave, important job. In particular, I'm a Sky News addict. I absolutely love Sky News. I think they are such an, a brilliant news channel and their reporters and their, their presenting team are just excellent. In particular, I think this week, Mark Austin, who is in Kiev, is such a hero. He is standing there with sirens going off in the background reporting all day long um, you know, he's obviously supported by Stuart Ramsey and the, the Sky News team there but I have to say Mark Austin is my hero of the week for bringing invaluable content to our screens and things that we really really need to see. I'm going to mention Clive Myrie actually as we're as we're talking about this because I've been seeing some of his bulletins and he's been sheltering in the underground hasn't he in uh, in Kiev which is terrifying when you see what's the impending not only what's been going on in the last few days but also what's possibly to come in uh, in Kiev. Can I make one special mention as well for somebody who isn't in Ukraine but a brilliant war reporter who's always out there is Alex Crawford as well a female war reporter who's the sort of the Kate AD of the last 10 years. Absolutely and how about who you're telling to get in the bin Kate? So I am telling war to get in the bin war as a concept the futility the senselessness we just need to learn our lesson and stop arguing with each other stop going to war we made a series last year with tony robinson for channel 4 called britain's forgotten wars and each episode looked at a different war and one of those was bosnia actually which is sort of disturbingly similar in some ways and every episode i watch you just think at the end of it what was the point why did we do that we achieved nothing other than hatred destruction and a legacy of fear and ruined lives so I would like war to go in the bin, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, there won't be a listener that will disagree with you, I'm sure. And it's the human cost, isn't it? We go home to our nice, safe houses and see this every night on the news, reported by those war correspondents, and you see the human uh, the human cost to it, which is, uh, which is heartbreaking. Let's put war in the bin. Let's hope by the time we're speaking next week, there's maybe even some better news. Maybe, maybe there's talking. There's, there's always a chance, I guess. Fingers crossed. Kate, thanks so much for coming on Telecast this week. It's been uh, great to hear about Woodcut and your uh, distribution business and everything that's going on from the production side at Woodcut West as well. I guess we'll see you in 
hopefully sunny climbs of Cannes at MIP TV very soon. I will see you on the Quasette. Thanks, Kate. Take care. Well, that's about it for another week's show. As always, thanks a lot for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to Telecast and share it with friends and colleagues. We've got a brand new website that includes exclusive feature content from TV's opinion leaders and journalists. They're all free to access. Just sign up at telecast.com. And while you're there, why not sign up for our free newsletter, Telecast Plus? You can also follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Telecast was edited, as always, by Ian Chambers and recorded in London. Until next week's show, as always, stay safe.